You're tuned in to the Curated by Podcast. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Curated by Podcast. For this podcast, we have our first non-Dutch guest. We have uh, Submorphix here in the studio in at the Melkweg. Uh, we know uh, Greg Submorphix for a long time. He's played on three of our parties. He's one of the two artists that played on three sold-out shows for us. I think the best one was curated by Lensman. We talk about that later. Um, yeah, Greg is uh, a hero for us. He makes beautiful music, he's a versatile producer and a very kind and humble person, so welcome, Greg. Oh, thank you very much. I don't know how versatile I actually am. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but before we start... Yeah, hopefully I don't do one thing only. <laughs> yeah, hello. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Rick. Welcome, everyone. Um, first on the list, one questions to kick off the podcast. Short questions, quick answers. Please. Okay, I'm scared. Are we there? Um, first one. Dutch herring or American hot dog? Dutch herring by far. American hot dog, what is that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> but short answers. Uh, Chicago House or Detroit Techno? Oh, man. It's a tie, but I'm a soul guy, so I'm going to go... Oh, this is terrible because I'm from Detroit. Slight <laughs> edge to Chicago House. But yeah. Detroit House is also very good. So. Good answer. Both. Uh, what was the first rave you visited? When and where? Oh. You make, you're going to make me admit how old I am. But it was probably <laughs> around 1997. I was a teenager. It was in Detroit. There was this classic uh, underused or unused plant um, called Packard plant that Ford and GM used to use, I think, in like the 60s and 70s. It had been abandoned for 20 years. And in the 90s, um, that's the hot spot in Detroit. Very grimy. Um, it was all techno music. A lot of it didn't quite. These are supposed to be short answers. I'm no, sorry. No problem. A lot of it didn't quite connect with me because I was really into melodic stuff and it was very just sort of minimal techno. But yeah, I loved the energy and that was my introduction to. Do you still remember who played there? Uh, it would have been Plastic Man, Richie okay. Houghton. Yeah. yeah. Um, it would have been. I believe so. If it's, you know, if it's minimal techno. You know, then. I think you know better than me. A lot of those classic Detroit guys had already left and went to Berlin at But that we'll point. But we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll yeah, come back yeah. To that. <laughs> um, uh, question number four: Best record store ever visited? Oh, I like Amoeba in California. San Francisco one or the, LA one? It's a tie. The LA one just moved to a slightly smaller location. It's still wicked. It's. I'm gonna go with San Francisco one though. Hate Street. Uh, yeah, Hayden Ashbury. Yeah. Most embarrassing moment while playing. Um, back in the CD, the the CDJ days where you used actual CDs. Everyone's done this. I rewound um, the wrong track, I believe, and then ejected the wrong track. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I was in Indiana, and there was about 10 people there. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's already embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, who's the best player of the Detroit Pistons Bad Boys era? Oh, Isaiah Thomas was uh, the golden boy. He uh, he had a killer smile as well, but he was deadly. I think he, he's not as nice as you might think, yeah. but uh, just because he's got that nice smile, don't be deceived. 
he's a, a ruthless guy. <laughs> I just had to ask this question. Yeah. Because, yeah it's, um, I don't know the bad boys era, but we'll talk yeah. about this later. <laughs> no one will know what I'm talking um, about right now. It's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll explain later. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the best producer on the North Quarter label? Uh, beyond me, you mean? Oh, <laughs> that's that's a good five. Yeah. I'm gonna go with Samorphix on that one. <laughs> no, uh, Saddle is probably the most um, versatile and prolific of all of us, and he's also the hungriest because he's you know he's about 15 years younger than the rest of us. So. And uh, who's the most uh, overrated? No, that's it. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm gonna go with FD on that. One. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shout out, Freddie. Um, There are no overrated <laughs> producers on the North Quarter. <laughs> so uh, these were the questions. Thanks for the answers. Okay. Um, and yeah. Let's go on. How did like, I do? Yeah, How would you, you say I did? Yeah, very well. <laughs> okay. So this is this is uh, your answer. So it's Scale the way you ten. think. <laughs> the way you think. But in the introduction, we mentioned uh, yeah for us a legendary party curated by Lensman uh, was our first sold out night at Paradiso. And you opened that night. Why are your memories of that that night? You were the opener. Oh, it was beautiful. Um, it was one week after I got back from Sun and Bass. Um, Shout out Sun and Bass. So I had had some time to recover from that experience because at Sun and Bass, I basically went for eight days straight oh. and drank all eight days. But <laughs> anyway, um, I played, I believe, was it 10 to 12? Yeah. Which is quite a marathon set. By 10.30, it was already... Not fully packed, but, but basically yeah, about yeah. packed. So it's sort of like when you do that, you have to adjust your mentality from going to a, playing to an empty room to a pretty full room. You don't want to quite play the bangers just yet, no. but um, it was amazing. Um, it was one of the best gigs I can remember. And, uh, and what was the lineup again? It was myself, and then LSB played after me, and then Caliber played, Lensman played, and then Alex Perez closed out. Yeah. And I remember Alex was saying that he was going to play like a purely soulful set and he he ended up really like tearing it out. Um, it was it was a wicked set from him so I can't <laughs> hate on that but uh yeah the crowd was just up for it. It was I remember all five of us thought it was just like one of the most special nights. I think it was the second ever curated by right. Yeah, the first it was yeah. the first one was with Nympho, then we did uh, with uh, with Lensman. So yeah. yeah, it was a big surprise for us as well that After the first one and the second party, yeah. such a big room, it's sold out. And having such a lineup, uh, yeah, we can't beat that. <laughs> no. Uh, and and having a party that from from start to finish, it's it's packed. Was uh, yeah, still uh, yeah legendary. And all the history behind Paradiso is just awe-inspiring. <laughs> yeah, being on stage where the Rolling Stones, yeah. uh, Prince. I've seen Prince play there. Yeah. So yeah. You, Same steps up to the stage as wow. such, yeah, <laughs> and and now we are here at Melkweg. Have you played at Melkweg? Before? I have not played at Melkweg yet. I've been here many times. Um, beautiful building, but um, next early uh, sorry later in the year, we're going to be doing something, aren't we? Yeah, on the 20th of October. Uh, not the 18th, uh, <laughs> the 18th of October that we posted. On Instagram, but on the 20th of October, we're doing a, a special Amsterdam dance event, the North Quarter special. So actually, we are now here at the Up Room, and we will have the party uh, on the 20th. So I guess it's yeah. be a big so North Quarter in family. this very room. Yeah, in this very room. And I like this room a lot, so I'm already looking forward. 
So I, I feel like it's like a, a theater or something. Uh, yeah. Like I want to see a play in here, a one-act play. Oh, you can play in a few uh, yeah, yeah. months, right? There we go. So, um, yeah, Greg, let's go back to your uh, your roots. You're from Detroit. Yes. Um, and um, we talked about it already, uh, uh, driving up, uh, driving to Melkweg. We've got a, a lot of a versatile music you love. Yeah, uh, like we were saying in the car ride over here during COVID, I'm just listening to things that I never listened to just because I'm bored of everything over the last 15 years all I listened to is drum and bass and hip hop and like um, soul and funk music and jazz and lately I've just wanted to get back into like psychedelic and chilled out rock from the 70s stuff before I was born and just like Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd and I'm trying to educate myself about folk music because I don't know anything about it Like my dad loves Bob Dylan and I never really listened to Bob Dylan and I'm just now like appreciating it. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is of any interest to your listeners. Oh yeah, everything is of interest. Yeah. But what, what did what, you, what your dad played at home? My Bob dad, Dylan? My dad played classical guitar when I was a little kid. He was, and I, I remember he would tell me that I would grab the strings because he was so bad and make him stop playing. And so he eventually quit. <laughs> <laughs> But um, shout out my parents who eventually let me play guitar when I was about 11 years old. They bought me a Fender Stratocaster and uh, this would have been around when the grunge era was. So those those songs were really easy to learn. And um, yeah, I wasn't Why? even I'm interested. I'm not a guitar player. Why is it easy to learn? The power chords are just sort of like you use these three fingers. Okay. And once you learn that on the first day of, of guitar <laughs> class, you can do all these punk songs and metal and shit. Um, but yeah, so that was where I was at uh, in my early teens. I was playing guitar. I was in a little band. We played covers of Nirvana songs and stuff. And my band lasted until I was about 16. What's we the name of the band? The band was called The Passion in Belgium, which is a strange <laughs> name. None of us had the been Passion to Belgium. Passion in Belgium. Okay. In the 90s, you just had these quirky names, right? And so when we were 16, we, were, we recorded a little eight-track tape and sold it at high school and stuff. And then we all sort of went different directions. And I, by the time I was 17, I was no longer interested in rock music. I had gotten into like Aphex Twin, and I had gotten back into hip-hop through Wu-Tang Clan and The Roots and Nas and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, the difference between where I was 16 and where I was 17 was like a 180 degree okay. change. I don't know what happened. But it was the 90s, like there was just so much great, amazing music beyond, um, you know, alternative rock. And I just, I lost interest in playing with other people. And I, my parents bought me this groove box. I don't know if you remember this thing. In the 90s, it was like a sequencer with synths on it and stuff. And you can, yeah. Someone, oh. someone, someone's <laughs> opening a beer. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. It's always can, a thing. Can, okay. Now everybody can open a beer can. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna, let's open the beer. <laughs> we can still open the beer just yeah. in the show, huh? We're not cutting this, right? It's it's important to yeah. drink some beers. But so, so I had this groove box that my dad bought me when I was 17, and my band had broken up. And you could make an entire track on this thing. It's about this big. And I recently re like 20 one. centimeters and 20 centimeters. Something yeah, like that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm talking about the groove There's box. No video <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> I recently rebought one from a store in Antwerp um, because this was the first thing I ever made beats on. And so during COVID, 
I thought, why don't I get one again? Because I haven't used one in about 20 years. But how does it work? Does it record things or? Uh, yeah, you can use it as a sequencer, but I'm, yeah. I'm just using it as a synth. And I also bought all these guitar pedals um, during COVID as like a little hobby. Yeah. Uh, I bought about nine of them and I'm running the groove box through all these pedals just to experiment and actually written, written some tunes for the North Quarter doing it that okay. way. And I've never used hardware on a on anything so this is like a first for me no drum computer nope all, only all, only so far only logic and reason um never really had any hardware um so this is a new thing for me inspired by covid inspired by covid yeah and and in your teens you were a, a rock kid a grunge kid and then moved how did you uh experience electronic music you're from detroit so well, maybe detroit yeah. techno was Yeah, there all was just all around the place. Or? Yeah, there was an overlap between the sort of like indie rock scene and the techno, and there was like an ambient night at this. Um, there was this dingy coffee club I used to go to, and they played a lot of like noisy Sonic Youth type bands, and they had an ambient night, and I would go there, and it didn't make any sense to me, but I liked it. Um, but it was just sort of like it was very melodic in the same way as like these like alternative rock songs and i just a lot of the unmelodic techno didn't quite speak to me but like i heard all this sort of melodic ambient music and aphex twin around that time and then um i got it like in those days you listened to everything like it wasn't so genre genre specific so like immediately um i had friends who showed me fotech and omni trio And that would have been the first drum and bass I ever heard. But I didn't really realize that it was like rave music. I thought of it more as like home listening music because it was quite jazzy. And it wasn't until I saw LTJ Bookham in 2000, 2001 that I realized that drum and bass is actually dance music. <laughs> so I was a little late to the party in that regard. But, but he played in Detroit. He played in Detroit at a club called Motor and Conrad was there. And just like the vocals with the synths combined with the breakbeats, I just, I was hooked immediately. Um, and it's a good name for a club in Detroit. Yeah. Motor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a legendary club. So it's, it's been closed for It's been closed a quite time. a while. I don't know how long, maybe 15 years. Mm. But I would go there whenever a drum and bass DJ came. Like Goldie would come every year, Bookham would come um, at Russian Optical. But you wouldn't get a lot of, a lot of drum and bass in Detroit because. I don't know. People, okay. di they didn't like it. Yeah, it's it interesting was very fast. how it's how it suits a city or not, right? Yeah, I guess not. But there are like early connections between like Four Hero and the and all the classic Detroit guys. Like um, this is before my time, actually. And then Goldie knows all those people. Yeah, and like, there's a, a connection. With there's the a connection. Mike Banks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a connection that goes back to the early 90s when I was just, you know, a little kid. Um, by the time I got into electronic music, it was sort of second or third wave of Detroit where like Carl Craig and Derek May and people like that might have already been in Europe. And so they, you know, had, they were massive superstars at that point. And Over here, they were massive superstars. In super Europe, they were. Yeah. I don't know if they Nobody were getting knew as... them in, in, in yeah, the US. that's the impression I always got yeah. that like uh, a lot of these guys weren't getting as much love locally, so they had to move to Europe. Yeah, like Derek May lived in Amsterdam. Yeah, I think Stacy Pullen, Kenny Larkin as well. 
yeah. if I'm correct. But yeah, they all moved here because here were the parties and the festivals. And so. more appreciation. Um, I feel that Europe was into electronic music much sooner than America was. So that always made me sad living in America that like in the early 2000s, it was mostly about boy bands and then these metal rap groups like Limp Biscuit and shit like yeah. that. And I hated all of that. <laughs> and so I just naturally was gravitated towards the underground because I thought all the radio music was just such rubbish back then. <laughs> and um, what what point did you start making music? My band broke up. The singer joined a different band, a more successful band of older kids. We were like 16 and he joined a band with some 19-year-old kids, sort of like this emo band. <laughs> and I thought they were shit and I didn't like the idea of him being in both bands and we just sort of fizzled out. And my tastes were changing anyway. It was time for me to just do my own thing. And I was already writing songs. So I had an MPC 2000, a Roland JP8000 synth, and a Groovebox. And um, I got those all when I was like a senior in high school, when I was about 18. My parents encouraged it. And so and I- they supported? I, yeah, I didn't have any uh, computers. I just used those three bits. Well, I, I said that I've never used hardware in my recordings, but this was before I was actually releasing music. So I had the three synced up with like MIDI cables and I used the MPC as sort of the drum machine and then the other two synths provided the melodic stuff. And so I was making music in the late 90s, early 2000s and didn't actually release anything until 2005, 2006. And what kind of music was it back then? It was not drum and bass. It wasn't dance music. It was... I guess you would call it IDM music. Oh, okay. um, and I really liked Boards of Canada back then. And um, somewhere along the line, I got into house music and sort of like this broken beat house, like Jazz Nova. And I was massively into like Ninja Tune and Mo Wax, stuff like that. Um, in addition to like all the hip hop I loved, like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and stuff. So my tastes were just all over the place before I got into drum and bass. But once I got into drum and bass, I just wasn't interested in anything else for about five years because I, um, after that Bookham concert, I discovered Music Concrete by Caliber and um, the early London Electricity stuff, the Marcus Intellects and ST Files stuff, uh, Influx Datum. And that whole thing in the early 2000s like grabbed me so hard that like I didn't listen to anything but drum and bass for about five years, <laughs> I feel like. Non-stop. Non-stop, a little bit of hip-hop, but yeah. mostly just drum and bass. And so that's why I am where I am today, because I was just so obsessed in my 20s that I, I didn't have any other aspirations musically than to do drum and bass. Because like I said, I didn't like any of the popular music that was that was around at the time, like the, the rap metal and the boy bands and stuff. And was this all in Detroit then? Or? Yeah, I was still living in Detroit. Um, going to university and I, once I graduated I moved to Chicago because it was like more of a hotbed scene for all sorts of music and so I had friends there in yeah for, in the mid 2000s Chicago was really good for drum and bass um, eventually dubstep took over and the drum and bass scene sort of died out a little bit what um, were your thoughts years. on uh, on dubstep yeah I was really into it really into it in like 2007 when it was like this early stuff like tempo records and dmz and stuff like that um by the time skrillex came around i was no longer interested 
uh, but I was listening. Why not? Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> you could probably imagine why not. It was just too <laughs> screechy for me. Yeah. But I love that early dubstep stuff. Um, and I was going to those nights. I thought it was really refreshing to hear it because the music just breathed in a, in a way that drum and bass didn't because of the tempo. So if you were expecting me to say some, to talk some shit about dubstep, uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> When did you start DJing, or were yeah, you okay. you were first a producer and yeah. then DJ, or? Yeah, I was making beats two or three years before I was DJing, and when I first started DJing, this is funny. I bought like five different genres of stuff in my first go. I didn't have any concept of beat matching or anything, and <laughs> I didn't have any bangers in my box. Huh. I'll tell you that much. It was all very like laid back stuff. What should we think about what kind of records? LTJ Bookham's album Journey Inwards yep. and I bought Mark Farina San Francisco Sessions and Deep House, Deep House sort of broken beat yeah. stuff um, yeah I guess that Journey Inwards record would have been the first one I bought but I wasn't really playing it out or anything like that it was more home listening and then when I finally got into buying drum and bass records the first ones I bought would have been the early high contrast records Influx Datum and Marcus Analex and ST Files and Nookie as well. Um, I was massively into like Nookie good looking Nookie, records. Nookie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Big Bud. So makes me sound a little bit old, but that's the sh <laughs> that's the shit that got me yeah. into this stuff. <laughs> so, but then like um, uh, Good Looking and LC Booker was a big example for you, and then releasing on Good Looking. It's yeah. like a milestone. Yeah, I mean, in 2001, my goals were get on hospital, get on good looking. And then 10 years later, I was able to do that. Um, good looking sort of fizzled out and doesn't exist anymore. So that's one of the reasons why it's amazing that the North Quarter exists. Because also Fabio's label, Creative Source, doesn't really put out records anymore. And then obviously Solar is gone, R.I.P. Marcus. So there's sort of a void... Um, for the soulful sound yeah. around 2017 and i think lensman did a really amazing job of filling that void but first um like the first release how did it go like if you were producing i think 2002 2003 maybe then or 2001 yeah. already um in in 2001 when i bought my first decks i was just djing for about a year i stopped producing because i i was just learning about the music and learning how to play to a crowd and I was getting my first gigs. The first gigs were sort of at these college parties at the University of Michigan. Sounds um, good. <laughs> you'd be surprised they were better than my first club gigs. Yeah, there were these sort of like co-ops, which in America is sort of like a bunch of people living together and they would throw a party on a Saturday night and it would just be hundreds of people. And they loved liquid funk drum and bass somehow. So oh, really, it was yeah. already a uh, uh, drum and bass then? Yeah. Okay. Oh, if I had to, I would play sort of funkier house music if they didn't want drum and bass. But um, I remember the hospital record stuff in 2001 was really going off at these parties. Like, part of me was like an anthem at these house parties. Um, and high contrast, make it tonight as well. But um, at my first residency, they didn't want me to play drum and bass they wanted me to play house music and like after about two months they finally let me play drum and bass and i remember they enjoyed it for about three tracks and then they were just not interested anymore it was just what, too fast for where them. was this residency this was at a club called the heidelberg which is a german themed 
club in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it was sort of like they used the upstairs bar area as uh, a nightclub on a Wednesday night and it would get like 20 people. But that was my introduction to playing in actual venues. That's yeah. why I'm saying the house parties were actually better than the first clubs I played at. But, but then um, you were also producing? Like not quite. I started getting back into producing in 2003, 2004. And uh, it was a... Submorphics actually started as um, actually two people in those years. And then eventually it became just one. Oh, just really? me. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's why it's a plural <laughs> name. It yeah. was me and my friend Ryan in 2004, 2005. And I did all the music. And he was a Pro Tools genius. And he did the drums and like... Um, we both did the mix downs, but he did the drums and the arrangements, and I did all the music. Where is he now? He's also active in music. No, or? he quit music in 2006. He plays. He plays online poker and makes online. a lot of money. Doing <laughs> <that>. Professional, <laughs> yeah. So in 2006, I had to start all over again, which was funny because we had signed a 12 to Spearhead Records, the two of us, and so I had to. So people knew us as a duo already. And so after that, I had to reinvent myself as just a solo artist. But I already had all the musical ideas and everything. It was just a matter of learning um, the DAW. But I didn't want to use Pro Tools. So in those days, it was Cubase. But eventually, I landed on Logic. Um, but then, uh, was the first release already on Spare then? Or that would have already been... Some? The f I had three split 12s in 2006. One of The first one ever was on a label called Symbolism Recordings, which was out of Omaha, <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska in America. And they actually <laughs> were quite prolific in the mid-2000s. So shout out to them. They were actually the first people who ever took a chance on me. And okay. uh, the flip side was a group called Duo Infernale, which was a, a German group who were doing good things in like 2005, 2006. And so my first three records were split 12s. And then uh, the Spearhead one was one of those three. And then the group, the duo, became a, a solo act. And so in 2007, I had to reinvent myself. And so I started collabing with people. Um, I was collabing with Lensman, Mutt, and Random Movement, um, and Atlantic Connection, who was known by known as Basic Operations back then. I think Random Movement is from the U.S., right? Random Movement is also from the U.S. Yeah, he was he was already doing really big things. He had like his first releases on Bassbin and, and Interground. Um, so I was fortunate that people were willing to collab with me even though I was relearning the software and stuff. And so Lensman, I think, taught me reason. This would have been 2007. Okay. And so I did a bunch of stuff with him in that year. And we had a, a record together on a label called Funk Fiction out of um, out of Germany, I believe. And yeah, Lensman's career took off after that. He started doing stuff with like CIA and stuff. And I was just sort of learning how to make music on my own in those years. And uh, I started working with West Bay Recordings, which was Atlantic Connections label. And I did three years with that label because they let me do whatever I wanted because I was making some other tempos. I was making hip hop. I was making 140 BPM stuff, not quite dubstep, but like soulful 140 stuff. And so Nathan, uh, Atlantic Connection, just let me do whatever I wanted. And so for three years, I was just working with them. Things weren't really going anywhere for me. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Camo and Crooked messaged me and they wanted a remix for their... Um, 
for their hospital album. Um, so the remix album came out of nowhere because I didn't think I was really a big name or anything. I didn't understand why they had asked me to do it because I was a nobody. And um, so thanks to Camo and Crooked because they took a chance on me. But were you a nobody? Like I, in my mind, I was a nobody. Um, this was around 2012, 2011. But for And instance, with with Lensman, how did you get to know him? Because you were rolling on MySpace. This. Oh, really? MySpace. MySpace? He also <laughs> had his first releases on Spearhead in 2006. Okay. So we started talking based on that, and um, on AOL Instant Messenger as well. And so we had a lot in common yeah, musically. <laughs> we <laughs> we both like Jay Dilla. We both like Wu Tang Clan, DJ Premier, stuff like that. And drum and bass wise, we both liked you know artificial intelligence, comics, you know all that good stuff in 2006. And so I think that's how we became friends because we were both on Spearhead. And so shout out Lensman for showing me reason in 2007. But um. Yeah. yeah, my career wasn't really going anywhere but, for. But you uh, had a job, for many normal time. job besides. I was working in restaurants and I was working in a small newspaper. I, my degree is actually in journalism. Okay. So when I was first out of college, I had a job in Ypsilanti working for a small newspaper. But I ended up in Chicago and I didn't keep doing the newspaper stuff. And I was just working in restaurants for three or four years before deciding to eventually just do music full time in the 2010s. Um, Because it's quite some years. Like we're going pretty quickly. And yeah. This, but, uh, it's like 2001 you started things. Yeah. And then um, in 2013 there was this year when when yeah. But I I started releasing around 2006, and I just because I had to start all over because this the duo became a solo act. I 2007 2008 I was just sort of relearning everything, and so I wasn't very prolific in those years either. But I. I I was releasing music I was happy with. I was DJing around America. And I that's why I didn't understand why Camo and Crooked wanted me on their album. But uh, Camo was just like, we really want a deep remix on this album and we think you could do a good job. And so they said, let's see what you can do. And we're, they gave me a deadline and it was about uh -huh. four weeks away. And I was so nervous and it was around Christmas. <laughs> and um, so I didn't go home that year. Um, I, I stayed in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> But um, did you make it to the, the deadline? I made the deadline, and they were happy with what I did. They had a few suggestions, and then I didn't hear anything again for two months. And I'm like, this can't be happening. It's too good to be true. And then I got an email. They were using my track. Okay. And so from there, things started to pick up because then I, I started talking to Marky and Brian G, and Friction at Shogun. Um, all of a sudden, things just started to pick up in 2013, 2014. And I started working with Friction at Shogun on his uh, sister label because he was trying to get that going. It had slowed down a little bit. And so I did a three-record deal with Shogun Limited and SGN Limited around 2014. So around 2014 to 2017, I was sort of committed to that. And then the North, came, the North Quarter came around and I was sort of like, oh, what's this? Like, I hope he's going to be able to do good things with it. But I wasn't sure because he had never started a label before. But Lensman came to America and he convinced me to do a, a, a seven track release on his label. Because he's like, we can start with some of these tracks that other labels did not want. Because I know you want to release them, but other labels um, have passed on these tunes. He's like, but you still need to write some fresh tunes. So um, 
That first release I did for the North Quarter, half of it was tunes that other labels had passed on, or they didn't like them or whatever. And then the other half was brand new stuff, specifically for the North Quarter. But I didn't know that it was going to become such a great label. Um, back then, it was just sort of an experiment, I thought. But yeah. I wanted to help out Lensman because he had been my friend for 10 years at that point. Yeah, that's pretty special, right? Yeah, if it's very special like working with your friends. Because like, I didn't have a real, a real relationship with like DJ Friction beyond um, drum and bass. I had never met him before, I don't think. Um, but Lensman and I have gone back 10 years, so... It's always nice working with your friends in, is that in this secret, industry. Secret of the North Quarter that it's more family. That's a big part of it, I think. And we have like uh, a group chat going, and it's all jokes all the time. And just, it is a family. We all get along as people, and we don't even talk about music a lot of the time. Um, I think that is a big part of it. And Lensman really encourages like a family vibe. I think he learned that from Metalheads. And some of us on the label never really had that before. We never were signed exclusively to a label. And we're still not. It's not an exclusive arrangement, but we all are very loyal to the North Quarter because he lets us do our thing and he pushes us all sort of to do the best work we can do. Um, tunes are never quite finished until he says so. And uh, we all trust his vision and his take on our music. If we disagree, we disagree, but... Usually we all listen to the big man because <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> And how would you describe the sound of uh, the North Quarter? Um, a versatile, soulful sound. There's a lot of sad pianos on the North Quarter. <laughs> 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 Can't really deny the sad pianos. But um, I think I have less sad pianos than other people. But other people tell me that I have plenty of sad pianos. Some people say my music is only summer music, though, and it's always happy. Ah, I can relate to that. I don't know if my music is always happy, but... Sounds happy. Different a lot of vocal. Yeah, yeah. Different people hear things different ways, but something that I consider melancholy, another person might consider uplifting, so... You've got a lot of vocals in your... Yeah, uh, I tunes. love vocals. Is, is, do you produce with a vocal in mind, or the vocal comes afterwards? When I'm writing the chords and the melodies, I'm not quite thinking yet if there's going to be a vocalist. It's not till like the next day when I listen to what I did and I'm like, oh, this would be much better if it had a vocal. But some tunes just don't need a vocal. Um, personally, I prefer the vocal tunes, but a lot of people feel the exact opposite. And um, I have to do stuff i like to do stuff that's for the underground but also has maybe a little bit of radio playability and so it's good um taya says it's good to appeal to both the underground and sort of a more commercial audience i think i agree i like i like music that's rooted in the un, in the underground though so and what is a subnorfix folk when is it suitable for um track? In terms of my samples, there's a very specific sound I'm going for. In terms of the vocalists I work with, it's more versatile. I like a little bit of R&B influence, a little bit of classic 90s. In the rappers I work with, they always have a little bit of that classic 90s influence. But um, I'm very open-minded with the vocalists I work with, and I like them to do their thing. I don't really tell them what I want out of them because I want them to express themselves without feeling like they have to like cater to something very specific for me i want them to do what they do and write their own lyrics i don't write their lyrics because 
I'm not a lyricist, but uh, I could be, but I think it's important for the vocalists to express themselves in that way. Um, so we were talking about uh, uh, the North Quarter as a family. D did this also uh, make you move to the Netherlands? It was one of the main reasons. Um, it's very easy as an American to move to the Netherlands because there's a Dutch-American friendship treaty and you declare as self-employed and you pay your taxes and they let you stay here. Um, it's not so easy in other countries for me or the UK, especially with Brexit. But um, but it was also because of the... I had a, yeah, I had a lot of friends. <laughs> I had, not a lot, but several friends here. And uh, Dan Stizo and I were living together at first in Leiden. And um, so I, it was just a lot of opportunities here. And um, getting the residence permit, I could figure that out as opposed to a different country. Um, but was it already the plan to go to go? It to was another the plan. Country, yeah, I was I was staying here 2016, 2017. I would use Leiden as sort of a base and then um, the south of Amsterdam as well. I eventually uh, landed in The Hague because it's affordable and really nice and pretty and quiet. But um, yeah, I was using Leiden in Amsterdam at first and then uh, finally moved over here at the end of 2018 and they... They actually rejected my residence permit application at first because I did it wrong. I tried to do it myself without getting a lawyer. And then I finally got some help to do it. And it's actually very easy. So any Americans who want to move over here, sorry, I should, be, come to the I should not be encouraging <laughs> that. But we are still like, in, we we don't still want in lockdown Americans. here. So. <laughs> They're like, enough Americans. <laughs> but but you, you, you also moved over here, I guess, for to play gigs. Yeah, Um This was one year before COVID, end of 2018, beginning of 2019. I was playing much more often. I signed with ESP. I was having a good time, <laughs> and then COVID happened. And I'm and I actually went back to America for a lot of 2021 because there wasn't much reason for me to be here. Um, but now I'm back. It's 2022. Hopefully, hopefully it's a better year in the Netherlands than last year. <laughs> and um, does it feel like home? The Netherlands now? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like The Hague and my apartment is very cozy and I'm pretty happy here. Well, COVID aside. But I, it doesn't quite feel like home yet. Maybe in, in a couple more years. <laughs> if I stay. Do you, do you want it to feel like home or is it the plan to go back to the US uh, uh, in a while? It's or? so hard for me to make a long-term plan with things going on. But... Um, I don't think I'm going to stay here forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. My plan is to stay here a couple more years. <laughs> Sorry. No, we're just laughing a bit because maybe I was expecting like, yeah, we'll stay in the Netherlands and uh, <laughs> get a wife, your kids, <laughs> well, house with a garden. <laughs> I said I would stay another two years. Is that not good enough? For yeah, you? yeah, yeah, that's good enough for us. <laughs> you, you've lived in Detroit, yeah. Chicago, San Francisco, yeah, The Hague. I've, Is it when you listen to your, mu your, your music, do you know where you lived at that time when you produced it? I do because I have a, a crazy memory for that sort of thing. Is that a different vibe? There's no different vibe. It's just submorphic. It's the same wherever I am. Because I'm in The Hague now and I'm still making Detroit-influenced music. So <laughs> it's sort of like, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at or whatever corny 90s expression that was. So there's Detroit-influenced music. Is there also 
Dutch influenced music. Dutch influenced music. Yeah, What I'm quite this? influenced by Chaba music. <laughs> 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 no, I'm really not. I went to one night once in yeah. Pard in a in Den Haag, and I had never heard it on a loud system before. It kind of shocked me a little bit. <laughs> But uh, and did you dance? You know how to dance to Gabriel music? I do music? not. I do not oh. know how. I heard it's recently. Like, it's like working out. It's like yeah, sports. I heard that recently in like. I heard recently that in the year like 1999 or 2000, like 20% of the Dutch population identified as a Chaba. Yeah. <laughs> Gabber. Yeah, yeah. That's our, our generation, yeah. the, the 40 plus generation is uh, in Holland uh, mostly Gabber. Yeah. So yeah. if somebody wants to educate me on the best tunes of that genre, uh, I'm always open-minded. Well, Rick. You can name yeah, some more. I'll drive you back today. <laughs> What <laughs> Dutch influences? Let's do a, let's do a created by Rick. Yeah. Lenny D. There we go. It's also uh, American Gabriel music. There is, and happy hardcore and stuff like that. Yeah, industrial strength and uh, yeah. the New York label was pretty big. Uh, also over here, but that's another yeah topic. And, and uh, in the in the in the past months. Um, You, yeah, we all know how it's going now with uh, live performances, um, but how's it going with producing? Um, yeah, I was actually pretty productive last year. Um, I I feel like I wrote at least 20, 25 tunes. I'm not going to release all of them, maybe like eight of them. <laughs> but um, yeah, I uh, I've got an EP that I'm finishing right now, and then. Um, I've done a little single for V recordings. I haven't worked with them in like six years. So it's not like that you're only mainly doing North Quarter. You also do. Yeah, my goal for this year is to um, get back to some of the other labels that I was working with because um, I don't know. I just want to diversify a little bit. So we'll see on that front. But uh, yeah, I've got some really exciting things later in the summer. Nothing in the spring, though. Okay, <laughs> and, and a release on North, North Quarter. You can count on that, I believe. <laughs> yes. And, and is that is it with the pedals you bought? And, yeah. And, and, uh, well, not every track, but I uh, definitely used the groove box through the pedals. So uh, if you can spot that, then send me a tweet and uh, I'll give you a free record. Oh, okay. <laughs> We just did a little contest uh, off the top of my head. And if you can say something about the way you produce, um, do you do a lot or...? Yeah, I always start with the chords and the melodies. Lately, I've started with drums because I think that's a really good way to do it in this genre. But historically, I usually start with the chords and the melodies and then build everything around that. But if I'm using a sample, I always start with the sample and then I build the music and the drums around that. But um, yeah, I always start with the vibes and the melodies first and just to get that sort of thing down. And then this, with these samples, like, are you always looking for them? or? Um? I go back and forth between using samples and not using samples. So when I get sick of samples, I'm just writing my own synths and my own keys and stuff. And then when I lose inspiration on that, I go back to the samples. So I have my sources that I don't want to reveal because <laughs> I, like I like to find really obscure soul music. And then I chop it up and I sort of rearrange it so that even if you did recognize it, hopefully I have rearranged it in a way that it sounds unrecognizable. But I'm hoping that the sample is unrecognizable to begin with. So So it's really about 
uh, obscure yeah, um, I sample. hope that for you too, man. Yeah. I really hope for you. I will say very happily. Because they'll get so, your ass. They'll get your ass. I will say very happily, I've never been sued by anybody. Yeah, so how does I should knock on wood now? How does sampling work for you? Do you go to a record shop and great digging and that's how it used to work and now there's YouTube and Spotify. Okay. And there is actually a really good jazz record shop in The Hague by Grotemart um Jazz Market, I believe it's called. I don't know if they're still in business, but I found some really cool records there. When in The Hague, you know need to go to You do support your local record shop. Um it's right by Chinatown. And um but mostly I'm finding samples on YouTube to be honest. <laughs> so uh before the podcast you told us a really funny story. Uh something really strange that happened here in Amsterdam. Can you tell us? <laughs> and more we saw about this it? in socials. <laughs> oh you saw this on my Facebook. Oh on the Facebook, yeah. Okay. So yeah, um before I moved here, I was living sort of temporarily in Amsterdam at an Airbnb and I uh was getting in my haircut. And I was 20 minutes early and I was leaning up against a tree smoking a joint and there was like a massive amount of bicycles leaning up against the tree and a lot of wind that day and I had my my headphones in and this was on the canal and um the wind ripped the tree right out of the ground and I looked up and it fell right down on on top of me <laughs> and I tried to push it out of the way but I I quickly realized that gravity is like a real thing <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a thing so in the I just, I just had to go with it this tree was falling on me and it sort of grazed my head but I got out of the way for the most part and it crushed one of the boats on the canal and I was so confused about what had happened <laughs> a small group had gathered around to look at me in shock <laughs> and they were like are you okay and I'm like, I think so and the police showed up and they said do you want to file a police report and I'm like well I I don't know who I would oh, file it against. So the, the, the tree? Against the tree or yeah. something. So I just walked away in shock. I'm like, well, <laughs> that doesn't happen to anybody else. And as I got on the train back to uh, back to my Airbnb, I realized I had a, a massive headache and it didn't go away for 10 days. So I probably should have seeked some medical treatment yeah. that day. But um, yeah, be careful of those Dutch trees if Dutch you're sitting trees. against one on the canal. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. So living in in the Netherlands now, it's very what? dangerous living it's in dangerous. the Netherlands. <laughs> so what's the, how how is how are we the, the Dutch? What what do you? No, you guys bad. never warn anybody when you live here. Trees fall on you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, living in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, dangerous as you told us. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, what are the main differences in in living in the U.S. and living in the Netherlands? Well, they speak Dutch here. <laughs> That's one. That's a big one. I'm coming from San Francisco, so um it's not San Francisco is not normal America obviously. So I can compare living there to here and it's kind of similar in a lot of ways. There's a lot of similar liberal mentality. They're both very imperfect places. America has so many problems. We don't even have to go into that. But do we got problems here as well? No, a lot of problems. No, not really. <laughs> um there's, you know, um What are the differences? Um, the drum and bass scene is better here. You have Liquicity here. You have um, Korpsakov here. You have uh, Curated By, obviously. Ah, that's what we wanted there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's more crews here. In in California, you have SD Union. You have LA Respect. 
and San Francisco has Stamina Sundays. So those are three really great nights. You have more than that here in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands is smaller than California, but you're also very near to the UK. So the culture um, spills over a lot more. America never really understood German-based culture, and it always made me sad. So I always had the plan to come out here eventually. Whether or not I stay permanently, I don't. I don't think I will. <laughs> But for now, it's okay. It's okay for now. Well, we want things to open up a bit more for our listeners, um, not from the Netherlands. We had a five-week lockdown. Um, only the supermarkets were open um, and pharmacies. So there is not a lot of nightlife here. Yeah. So it's now for the listeners the twenty-second of January. Yeah. And since last week, you can sport again yeah so, uh, my gym just reopened gyms open and hopefully uh, they decide to open up uh, culture again yeah that would be amazing um otherwise it's a pretty quiet life in den haag right now because do, do you have uh, international bookings at the moment did you play in the last weeks or months um i did do a phonox in london a few weeks ago and then i am planning on going back to the states i've got some gigs i'm about to announce for april And then later this summer um, and autumn, things, I, I can't even announce that stuff yet, but um, things are sort of spread out right now with COVID right now. Um, I wish there were more gigs. It's yeah. one of the reasons why it's weird being over here, because I did come over here to play more gigs and then COVID happened. So, But we all have a sad story right now, don't <laughs> we? <laughs> and and uh, we started uh, the podcast uh, talking about the Pistons. Uh, you are massive. A basketball fan. I do like basketball. We miss it because the basketball league here, uh, Leiden has a good team, but the basketball league is not that good yeah. over here. But a lot of the players end up in America. I I don't watch a ton of sports, but I watch in the morning with my coffee. I I watch the previous games from the night before. Um, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, actually. Sorry for being a bandwagon fan. Sorry. But no, no Pistons. I am still a Pistons fan, but they oh. suck. Oh, I sound like a terrible fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible person. Like a success <laughs> fan. <laughs> Another loyal fan. Not from the sounds of it, I'm not. But I was in San Francisco for the entire five years of their championship run, so it makes okay. sense I'm a yeah. fan. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed two teams, but yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you saw the bad boys play. I did. I was about nine, ten years old. Yeah, maybe because we uh, started the podcast with the bad boys. Yeah. Maybe explain before we end the, po the podcast what the what the okay. bad boys are. Because this is yeah. just a generation thing. Yeah, <laughs> so generation gap maybe for the <laughs> listeners, but for anyone who saw um, the Last Dance with uh, that Michael Jordan documentary, ah, yeah, yeah um, this is good. This is good because people saw people that. saw Last Dance, <laughs> so they know what I'm talking about. Um, basically, the the Detroit Pistons would just beat the shit out of anybody who got close to the the rim and that was their technique <laughs> and so michael jordan was a really skinny guy back then and they would just like they would just basically punch him or like push him to the ground yeah instead of letting him score easily they would make him go to the free throw line and nowadays you can't really get away with that anymore the rules have changed but basically everybody hated detroit back then because they would just punch people like yeah, assholes aggressive, uh, rough team i don't condone violence but uh <laughs> it, it worked for them at the time okay so now we have that experience. yeah That's and, an important and, and one. they had two consecutive uh titles in 89 90 or 90 91 and 
89, 90, and then the Jordan era would have been yeah. 91. And then they had one. They had one in 2004 as well. Yeah. yeah. For anyone who gives a shit. Nah, let's, go, let's, go, let's go back to music. So, yeah. <laughs> the final question is um, your last album on earth. Oh. So, you get one chance to make one last album. Um, who will you invite on the album to work with you? Uh, they can be dead or alive, singers, bass players, production, beats, whatever. What's your okay. team and what kind of music will you make? Since you've let me, I'm going to use dead people and living people. On trumpet, we got Miles Davis, of yes. course. On keyboard or piano or whatever he wants to play, we got Herbie Hancock. And he's still alive. He's I saw, still alive. I yeah. saw him live in Oakland, California a couple years ago, which is a bucket list moment. Um, and then we've got Jay Dilla and the MPC, RIP Jay Dilla. Yeah. And then let's have Mad Lib in there as well. Mad Lib. Let's <laughs> okay. have him on his iPad. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, let's throw Marvin Gaye on vocals. vocals. And then... Drummer? Do you want drummer? A drummer. Let's go... Oh, shit. <laughs> Who's a good... Let's go Buddy Rich, the classic jazz Buddy drummer. Rich. But he's an asshole from what I understand. Did you use a sample of him? Okay, Probably. <laughs> Probably. No Ginger Baker? Ginger Baker is also sick. Um... And then uh, let's throw. Did I already say Hendrix on guitar? No. Let's throw Hendrix on guitar. Oh, that's that's okay. <laughs> and then we got our band. Uh, a rapper, or vocal. Let's throw Nas and Ghostface Killer. But it's on there. it's all male bands. You need oh, women we need in some the band. females. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's throw MC Light from the '80s, the classic okay. '80s rapper on there. And um, a Wu Tang member. Let's. We already have a Ghostface oh, on Ghostface, there. Oh, Ghostface. Yeah. Yep. And let's throw uh, Nina Simone in there as well. Why not? Why I would, would we I would not? Go. I would go. <laughs> so, and that's the band. Okay, so then the name of the band, and then uh, we'll finish again. Somorphics and the other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thanks a lot, man. Uh, thanks, everyone. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me, guys. This was yeah. fun. So, the 20th of October. The 20th we of October, okay. during ADE, will be uh, a massive uh, North Border family show. Everybody will. I hope everybody will come. To Amsterdam, all the artists, vocalists, yeah. uh, will be a memorable night, legendary night. I hope. Yeah, those ADE um, events are always legendary, and we haven't had that. Did we have that last year? No, I think you, North Pole last ADE night was 2019. Yeah, 2019 yeah. or 18. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so it's a welcome return. Yeah. yeah. October 20th. We are with the North Quarter Night back, and our first night is on April 9th, with uh, curated by Imanu. Hope to see you there. You're tuned in to the Curated by Podcasts.